Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, and welcome to Babbage on Economist Radio, our weekly podcast on technology and science. I'm Kenneth Kukier, a senior editor at The Economist, and coming up on today's show. A deadly virus has broken out in China. What are the symptoms, and how can it be contained? The biotech company that is trying to take on Big Pharma. And does Huawei's 5G technology pose a threat to countries' national security? A new strain of the coronavirus has broken out in the city of Wuhan in China. Now, China is desperately trying to keep a lid on the spread of the Wuhan coronavirus, but so far, it seems to be losing battle. Yet another country is on alert over the new strain of coronavirus. Es el primer paso para el control de posibles afectados por el coronavirus. Tonight, U.S. airports on high alert, screening passengers for symptoms of a deadly new virus. Chinese health authorities have advised people to stop traveling in and out of the city to prevent it from spreading further. And airports around the world are screening arriving passengers for signs of infection. The disease has already spread to some other Chinese cities, and a handful of cases have been identified abroad, including in Japan and the United States. So coronaviruses, we know there are seven of them which infect humans. They include SARS, which stands for Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome, and MERS, which is Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome. And now this new virus is the third one, which is quite dangerous. Savea Chankova is the Economist healthcare correspondent. So far, there have been 17 deaths reported with about 550 cases, and surely there are many more which have not yet been found. This is very preliminary, so as more data emerges, this rate will be going up and down until health authorities really zero in on exactly how deadly this is. Can you compare the different coronaviruses? How does this differ from SARS? At this point, the virus seems to be a close relative to SARS, just looking at the genome. The one difference is that this new virus seems to have a very wide range of symptoms. In some people, they're quite mild. In other people, they're quite severe. People requiring intensive care in hospitals, oxygen, uh, more like SARS. With SARS, the symptoms were almost universally severe. And this started in Wuhan, in central China. That's right. Wuhan is uh, the epicenter. The vast majority of cases reported so far are from there, but also because the authorities are really looking for those cases and also diagnosing them. Uh, The virus has been sequenced. So um, health authorities can use tests to identify that people have that versus, uh, you know, some other respiratory infection, for example. They're also trying to find the uh, original source of the outbreak. Uh, We know this virus 
came from animals. So at some point it mutated into a form that could infect humans, one that actually can spread from uh, human to human, which is when they become really dangerous. We don't know yet which animal it is. Uh, it's probably some wildlife. That's where these viruses often come from. They have come from bats. MERS uh, is from camels. So uh, we'll probably know fairly soon as the disease detectives are uh, doing their work. So that's what the authorities in Wuhan are doing. What about in China more widely? The Chinese authorities appear to be very committed to curbing this outbreak. They have been uh, very cooperative with the World Health Organization, sharing data. They shared the genome of the virus very quickly, which has helped other countries identify passengers from China who have come in with the virus. And how are health authorities going to try and tackle the disease? It's really just traditional public health measures. So um, it's the kind of stuff you do when there is a measles outbreak or a salmonella food poisoning outbreak here, for example. Um, so what they do is just try to find the source of the outbreak to stop it from infecting more people and also try to find people who have been in contact with those who are already sick and monitor them for signs of infections. In some cases, they have to be uh, quarantined to prevent them from spreading the virus further. Do we have any idea how easily this virus can be spread? Not yet. We know for sure that it can spread from human to human. That wasn't clear uh, about a week ago. But we really need more data to find out whether it's something very contagious, uh, like measles, for example, or it is uh, far less contagious, like MERS, one of the coronaviruses is, which is uh, transmitted mostly through close contact. So if we've sequenced the genome of the virus, can we create a vaccine for it? There are several vaccine candidates currently in development against coronaviruses. But the thing to remember is it takes quite a long time to actually develop them into a vaccine that uh, they can give to people. Um, and obviously, clinical trials of vaccines take a long time because they have to be tested for safety and efficacy. So what are the next steps? So the next steps are just to keep monitoring the situation. Countries are already, as you said, uh, setting up uh, tracking at airports. Uh, how many patients they'll find is unclear because the virus uh, seems to have long latency. So, you know, between the time you get infected and the time your symptoms become serious. Gathering more data as more cases are found on the progression of the disease to find out how long it takes to develop symptoms, you know, how long it takes to progress from no symptoms or very mild symptoms to severe symptoms, which would be an indication of how quickly it can spread, because if people feel well, they can spread the virus for longer and the outbreaks will become bigger. As time goes by and, and more cases progress to the severe stage of the disease, it will also become more clear of just how dangerous it is, for whom is it most dangerous. At this point, it seems to be affecting mostly middle-aged and older people. Uh, it seems to be most dangerous for people who already have pre-existing conditions. And uh, we should also remember that the Chinese New Year uh, is coming, coming up, which uh, would result in a massive increase in, in travel, both domestically and internationally, in and out of China. So all these are outstanding questions, the answers to which will become clear in the next probably week or two. Thank you very much, Slavea. Thank you, Ken.
a biotech startup is hoping to revolutionize the way drugs are brought to market and take on the business model of big pharma. Historically, to sell a drug, pharmaceutical companies had to develop the medicine for a wide population and then hold costly clinical trials. But the new company plans to streamline the process and slash the price for patients. Natasha Loder is The Economist healthcare editor. Natasha, tell me more about this company. So EQRX is a Boston-based biotech firm uh, that just launched this month with $200 million of finance from a bunch of venture capitalists in uh, the West Coast. And they want to do something quite interesting. They want to basically make cheap drugs. Sounds very good. Why might they do it where the pharmaceutical industry doesn't? EQRX feel that the existing pharma model is broken and that when drugs are put on the market, the price is too high. What they're worried about is in America, even if you have health insurance, you pay kind of really big out-of-pocket costs for drugs. Now, in the old days, you know, when drugs were cheaper, that wasn't such a big issue. But, you know, a lot of the modern generations of cancer medicines and more specialist drugs are costing several hundreds of thousands of dollars. You know, they feel that it's all very well, the science being brilliant, but if you can't actually get it to people, then it's not doing any good. So what do they want to do differently? What they want to do differently is essentially they're going to issue what's called copycat medicines. And so they're not going to be innovators in their own right in the sense of discovering a sort of new target in a disease and then designing a molecule for it. What they want to do is they want to look at, I guess, existing drugs and then do fast copies, essentially. Now, the pharmaceutical industry already does this. They just charge for them. So you may have uh, two or three drugs in a particular category doing pretty much the same sort of thing. And uh, they all the cost about the same or not, not very much different. And um, what EQRX wants to do is charge a lot less. How much less? Well, they say it depends on how you know affordable the drug needs to be. They say it could be a third of the existing price. They say it could be less. How much does it cost to make a drug today? The industry would like us to believe figures of about $1.4 billion per drug. Now, you'll see higher figures than that. You'll see figures like $2.8 billion per drug. They include um, the cost of capital. You know, when you invest in a drug, you have to kind of tie up your capital for a long time. And so they justify that $2.8 billion by saying, well, you know, these are real costs to develop a drug. In terms of, like, how much comes out of your pocket, which is more meaningful sort of number for people when they compare how much does it cost to design an airplane versus a drug, well, 1.4 billion is the cost. Now, that cost includes the cost of failures, right? And so it doesn't cost 1.4 billion for each drug. It costs less than that, and some of them fail. Now, what is the failure rate in the industry? The industry would like you to believe that the failure rate is about nine out of every 10 drugs that enter the pipeline. Only one in 10 get through. I think that's a little bit pessimistic. So they want to reduce that cost. They say that the actual cost of developing each drug, assuming it doesn't fail, is about 375 million of that about 10 million can't really be moved. It's going to be sort of manufacturing and things like that. And the rest of it, they think they can trim down on that cost. 
How are they actually going to do it, though? They're going to do it by using precision medicine techniques, essentially. What they're going to do is they're going to design very efficient trials, possibly even running them in other countries. They're going to buy in molecules from other people. So, you know, say you want to copy a particular uh, drug that has some particular action. You might, you know, scout around biotech firms all over the place, you know, maybe in China even. And um, you might uh, buy in a cheap molecule that looks like it might work and you might do some kind of uh, pretty focused clinical trials on those. So there's, that's the sort of thing that they're talking about. Obviously, there's a lot of skepticism. It's an exciting idea, but there is a lot of skepticism about whether they can really pull this off. They wanted to launch 10 drugs in 10 years, which if they do, would be remarkable. So let me get this right. Are they doing anything new or are they just doing what's already done better? Yes, they are trying to do what other companies do, but better in in terms of copying drugs. So that's one element of it. But the other element of it is essentially is that they're making a commitment to low price drugs right now. The problem in America is that you can price a drug at what the market will bear. Right. And so if you're a biotech firm and you have a new drug, really, the incentive is to charge as much as you can for it. What EQRX is saying is, well, actually, we're going to do things differently. What we're going to do is we're going to sell drugs cheaply and we're going to sell lots of them. We're going to scale up. They're going to try, I think, and do deals with uh, people like uh, health insurers and employers, maybe even national health services. Who knows? I think they're going to have to get some sort of commitment as well from the people who buy drugs that they will buy their drug. Because the difficulty, if you undercut when you make a drug, if you undercut and say, look, my drug's cheaper, is that, you know, the person who has the sort of brand leading drug can come along and say, well, actually, do you know what, we're going to cut our price too. And because you've been using our product all along, you're going to want to stick with our product. And so that's the danger there. So there's, but the commitment is there. And that's really kind of what's different. So this looks like it's going to be healthy competitive pressure. Well, yes. I mean, that ultimately is the good news. I guess, you know, the big question for the people who are financing EQRX and EQRX itself is, you know, whether they're going to be able to kind of go the distance, really. And they should expect that other pharma companies are not going to play nicely and uh, will do everything they can to basically undermine and undercut uh, EQRX. So it's not going to be easy. That's fascinating. Natasha, thank you very much. Thank you. On a recent episode of Babbage, I had the pleasure of speaking to Henry Chesbro about the idea of open innovation. Henry is a professor at the UC Berkeley Haas School of Business and is the person who coined the term back in the early 2000s. He's written another book on the subject called Open Innovation Results, Going Beyond the Hype and Getting Down to Business. For a chance to win a signed copy, I asked you, my dear Babbage listeners, to imagine a world where open innovation was the default way we thought of new ideas. What if the pendulum began to swing the other way and companies decided they wanted to engage in closed innovation? Now, they wouldn't want to call it closed, closed innovation, because that doesn't sound great, bad branding. So what would they call it as a euphemism for closed instead? First, thank you to everyone who sent in a response. There was a deluge of great answers. One of our runners-up was a listener named Mike from South Africa. He argued that it should be called integrated innovation 
and he says he can see the PowerPoint slides now. Another runner-up is Matt from France, who suggested innervation. One word, that's inner, I-N-N-E-R. And Matt, you provided a dictionary definition, and we loved it with pronunciation, synonyms, and antonyms. But the winner of the signed copy of Henry's book is Camilla from Vienna, who said it should be called bounded innovation. In her note, Camilla said that the term makes a reference to the fixed boundaries of a firm within which internally developed innovations are to be kept sealed. Congratulations, Camilla. We'll send you a signed copy of the book. And our good news to the runners-up is that we have two other copies that we'll send as well. And again, our thanks to everyone who participated. They were an absolute delight to read, and they came from everywhere around the world. Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany, and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live, and move to the UK. Should Huawei equipment be allowed in the 5G wireless networks of countries around the world? The Chinese company's tech is now seen as the best on the market. But a lot of governments don't trust the Chinese corporate giant. They worry it might allow the country to spy on them, or steal secrets, or worse. Huawei is already effectively blocked in Australia and Japan, and America has been lobbying other countries to freeze the company out. In the next few weeks, two other American allies, Britain and Germany, will need to make decisions of their own. Tim Cross is the Economist Technology Editor. Tim, you've been looking at this issue for a while. What are the benefits of using Huawei's technology? Well, you mentioned one, which is that its kit is widely seen as being the best. So there are really three sort of big companies that supply this stuff. There's Huawei, uh, there's Ericsson, and there's Nokia, who people might remember uh, both used to make mobile phone handsets back in the day. They have most of the market between them, and there's a couple of also rounds like Samsung. Huawei has the highest market share, and that's a combination of the fact that its stuff is both good quality uh, and cheap. And also they have great service, because an operator needs the services to actually install it and to sometimes run it. Yeah, and if you talk to mobile phone operators, they will say, you know, we just like their kit because it's good, basically. But there are big concerns from the United States over security risks. What are those concerns? Yeah, and they aren't just from the U.S., although the U.S. has been sort of pushing them the hardest, I suppose. They are basically that you can't trust the company uh, by virtue of it being Chinese. So we know that, you know, big countries are not above using their sort of national tech champions to conduct espionage. And it's probably a bit naive to think that China would be an exception to that, particularly given its record with hacking, with IP theft and so on. So one set of worries is that, you know, if you install Huawei gear, it might come with what are called backdoors, which are sort of deliberate security holes put into the software and the hardware that only the Chinese know about, and that they might use those backdoors to monitor stuff that's going on at the network, or even potentially, you know, in, in extremists to actually sabotage the phone networks of other countries by, you know, shutting down gear or causing it to sort of behave oddly. And we should say, you know, people have been looking for these, uh, for evidence of these backdoors, and so far have never 
found any, but that hasn't done much to sort of quiet the worries. So are these fears justified? I think to an extent they are, yes. I mean, technology offers a very good way to conduct espionage. We know China is quite keen on conducting espionage. Huawei has always said, if you ask its executives, they'll say, well, we don't spy. And if we were asked to spy by the Chinese government, we'd say no, which I think is maybe sort of displays a rather touching idea of how governance in China works. You know, I think most other people would say the idea that, you know, if the Chinese government comes to you and says, you must help us spy, you know, the idea that you can just say no, particularly if you're a big company like Huawei, is a bit ridiculous. So how can a country have it both ways? Buy the kit, but also protect their networks to see that this risk is minimized. Well, so the American argument is that they shouldn't. Is that you should just you should just bar the stuff completely. You know, don't take the risk. Um, freeze Huawei out, and at least you can sort of avoid that. But that argument hasn't been persuasive everywhere. So you mentioned Australia and Japan, who have you know either de facto or de jure decided to sort of freeze Huawei out. Britain is one of the big standouts. So um, it's a very close ally of America's. It's one of the five eyes, along with, with Australia, which is this sort of globe-spanning electronic intelligence pact. It's had Huawei gear in its existing 4G networks for quite a while. And, and this argument's been sort of bubbling along for the past year or so. So the previous government under Theresa May, uh, their decision was leaked and it looked like they were going to allow Huawei in. And it looks like the current government, which has said it wants to decide by the end of January, is also going to do that. And they're making that decision on the basis of advice from their own sort of cyber spooks, as it were, that they can manage the risk. Why is it taking Britain so long to decide? Clearly, they have decided, they want it, but they must be getting so much pushback from America that they're dragging their feet. I think it's partly pushback. I think you partly have to look at the context as well. So it's a big decision. Britain's government has a lot of big decisions to make right now. You know, Brexit is sucking up a lot of the or almost all of the oxygen in the room. And in fact, Brexit even plays into this because if you decide to go with Huawei, then you risk annoying the United States. And one of the government's big goals is to sign a trade deal with the United States as soon as possible. Um, If you freeze Huawei out, then you risk annoying the Chinese. And Boris Johnson's predecessors, so particularly David Cameron and George Osborne, made a lot of play about, you know, developing economic links with China. So, you know, one of the first things Britain's going to have to do once it's left the European Union is to sort of, it's got two superpowers and it has to decide which one to annoy. Okay, but there is a third way that it's going to try to implement, which is to sort of be able to inspect it and give reasonable precaution it's due. Yeah, so this is the way that it hopes to kind of square that circle. So um, it's had Huawei gear in its existing phone networks for quite a while. And there's an arm of GCHQ, which is Britain's electronic intelligence agency. And the defensive arm of GCHQ, which is Britain's uh, electronic intelligence agency, it oversees a lab, which essentially sort of tears down and inspects all the Huawei gear that comes into Britain, goes through the code, tries to find anything that looks, you know, sinister. So far, it's never found anything. And the argument is that a combination of that kind of inspection and sort of clever network design, so you try and keep Huawei out of the bits that are sensitive and let it into the bits that you don't care about quite so much, and also just sort of general principles of good design so that it's hard to crash your network, it's hard to get in. Some combination of all those three things mean you can essentially have your cake and eat it. You can let this company in, but mitigate the risk that it poses. Now, Tim, you in your reporting over the years on this have an interesting perspective on why focusing on who makes the kit is a little bit preposterous. Yeah, so I think one thing you hear fairly often when you talk to some of the technical people, particularly in the UK, they make the point that you know we have to be aware of the sort of full scope of the threat. 
and they say, okay, so look, the worry about Huawei, or one of the worries about Huawei, is that there might be these backdoors placed deliberately into its equipment, and that could let hackers in. But it doesn't therefore follow that banning them will make you safe. And the example they often give is Russia, which has you know no domestic computing industry really to speak of, no electronics industry, um, and therefore no ability to put backdoors in kit that's sold abroad. But that doesn't stop Russia's hackers from hacking in you know, to everyone from the, the Democratic Party in the US to Ukraine's power grid. And the reason is that most hacks that happen, most security breaches, tend to exploit sort of accidental bugs, accidental flaws, which kind of infest every digital device. And so they say, well, look, you know, you can ban Huawei, and that might slow Chinese hackers down a little bit, but it's certainly not going to keep them out. And what they say instead is you should look at ways of uh, designing your network so that they're sort of redundant, they're reliable, they're resilient. If they, if they fail, they fail gracefully. You sort of limit the damage that people can do if they do get in. And that maybe you should be looking towards, you know, pushing things like open source software and open source hardware where you know you can see the specifications in the exact code that your systems are going to be running. And there's already a, a sort of move towards that inside the industry. So one thing you hear maybe in the UK more than other places is that that kind of sort of broader and more defensive approach would probably bring greater benefits than just banning Huawei, if only because it would protect you from everybody else besides just the Chinese. So Britain and Germany, when will they make their decision? So Britain has said it wants to decide by the end of January. Uh, Germany, it's a bit less clear. So um, the situation there is that Angela Merkel, the chancellor, is, I think, broadly in favor of letting Huawei in. But lots of people in her own party, the CDU, are much more hawkish. Um, I think it's not an argument that's going to be resolved in the immediate future. I think we're maybe looking at months rather than weeks. Tim, thank you very much. Thanks, Ken. And you can read more about Huawei's fate in the upcoming edition of The Economist, including an article about the decision that Germany has to make. And you can subscribe today. Go to economist.com slash radio offer for 12 issues for $12 or £12. And that's all for this edition of Babbage. Please take some time to rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. I'm Kenneth Kukier. And in London, this is The Economist. Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK, the nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany, and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live, and move to the UK.